Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world of the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week I have just come back from Paris where many people are talking about their president Emmanuel Macron's latest big idea. First, he decided to turn French politics on his head and started a new political party and ran for the presidency of the country. Then he wanted to launch a revolution in Europe and has spearheaded the development of a new political force in the European Parliament. And his candidate became both president of the European Commission and also he managed to get the European Central Bank for a fellow French person in Christine Lagarde. And now he is looking beyond the European Union to think about recreating the European security order, an initiative which he launched with a speech to his ambassadors on the 27th of August this year, and which has been followed up with a number of different meetings by his ministers in Moscow, in Robinson before the G7, and again at the funeral of the former French president Jacques Chirac which provided the latest meeting point for Emmanuel Macron and President Putin. To help me make sense of the Macron initiative, what it means, where it comes from, and how it will end, I have two amazing colleagues. Just back from Moscow is Kadri Leek, who's a senior policy fellow on the Wider Europe programme. And also in Berlin is Gustav Kresser, who is the acting head of the Wider Europe programme, and has been on the podcast many times, not just to talk about Russia, but about uh, Ukraine and the Eastern neighbourhood, which I think are also a core part of this conversation. Gustav, why don't you go first and, and tell us about what Macron said in Paris, what was so important about it in terms of the way that it was perceived in other places? Well, on substance, actually, the Macron speech was rather thin, to be honest. So there was a general outreach idea. There was the repetition of the thought that security in Europe can only be built with Russia. There was a show for understanding of Russian grievances, etc., and the necessity for outreach. But on all critical details, why past initiatives and outreach haven't worked, on how to build security, on how to guarantee security for all states within Europe, the speech was rather thin. There were some smaller bits and pieces that, of course, attract attention, especially on the eastern flank. One was the phrase that sort of multiple concentric cycles of integration, which then, of course, made the states not only on the eastern flank, but also the states in between Russia and the European Union and NATO immediately asked themselves, where would we fall into and will we be able to self-determinate whether we want to belong to this or to that concentric cycle? Katri, I know you've been studying it carefully as well and looking also at the speech which Macron gave. It would be very interesting to see where um, you think this is coming from, because he does talk in quite grandiose terms about He says, we know that civilizations are disappearing, countries as well, Europe will disappear if we don't manage to to find a way of finding space between America and China. What do you think the roots of this Macron vision are? Well, I'm not sure I'm the person to ask. We don't have our Paris colleagues here. They would probably be a better place to explain. But I think that is one of the good things about that speech, 
but Macron is aware and explains us that the world is changing. And I do think that that awareness has not yet properly dawned in Europe. I, in discussions about Russia, among other things, I notice that the sort of default thinking in many European capitals is still the expectations that we will get 1990s back. You know, the time when Europe was the leading normative power and everyone was converging to be like us. And that is not coming back. And we need new strategies to cope with a new era. And I think that thinking is in that speech. The rest, especially as concerns specifics about Russia, is often less good. Although there are also some moments uh, that I agree with. So when I was in Paris, what I heard from a lot of people is this sort of idea that Emmanuel Macron fears that Europe is going to be on the menu if it doesn't have a seat at the table in this world of great powers, that China and America are um, increasingly weaponizing all of their relationships in different places. And that they fear that there's a, a danger that Trump will just do a deal with Moscow, leaving Europe high and dry. But also that the European position is very um, brittle at the moment. They support the, the sanctions that have been put in place. But they say that if Russia moves, those sanctions could end up disappearing and then Europe will be left with no unity, with no policy and, and with nothing. And for that reason, they think that Macron wants to try and work out a way of engaging Russia alongside the, the sanctions and of de-escalating the, the situation. But this does pose lots of questions for other players. And maybe we can come at it through sort of three or four different angles. Firstly, what does it mean for European countries, particularly in the East, that worry about uh, NATO and, and the EU and what this phrase of concentric circles that you mentioned before, Gustav, means. And then maybe we can also think about what it means for countries further east like Ukraine, Moldova, Georgia, countries that are caught between these two integration projects and trying to defend their own autonomy and sovereignty in the world. And then finally, maybe to think about how it's seen in Moscow, because I know you've been talking to a lot of people about that, Kadri. Why don't we start with the first question about Central and Eastern Europe? Gustav, do you want to go first? May I just add, Mark, to your comment that sort of many of the things that unnerve the French, unnerve the Eastern Europeans as well. If you just follow recent events, how Kurt Volker was thrown under the bus in the, in the revelations about the phone call Trump had with Zelensky, one wonders about the predictability and stability of American politics. But on the other hand, Macron just sort of used the vocabulary and the ideas that made, makes everybody more nervous in Eastern Europe instead of calming them. So... For the most of the Eastern European states, and that includes the Scandinavian states like Finland, like Sweden, uh, like Denmark, like Norway, and Black Sea states like Romania and Bulgaria, they feel vulnerable to Russian pressure. Some more on the field of energy, most of them in the field of hard military power and security. Here they feel that the rest of the Europeans haven't quite understood the magnitude of their problem. Uh, all of these countries have gained independence, sovereignty, and sort of factual or real independence rather recently with the dissolution of the Warsaw Pact uh, or the dissolution of the Soviet Union. So they are all very fond of the situation where they can actually conduct their own politics and 
pursue their own interest. And they don't want to be boxed into a situation where they would be cut short of that ability. That could be by, for example, declaring them into buffer states that would be indefensible against Russian military incursion. There were some ideas some Germans brought up during 2016 that one could have a kind of zones of reduced NATO troop deployments in the east. There are sort of many different ideas that Russians at point uh, bring up. All of them would mean that basically if there were a crisis and if Russia were to use military power, which Russia can do, as we have seen in 2014, that it would be virtually impossible to react to such a crisis or to counterbalance a Russian move. The other thing, for example, for Ukraine, for Belarus, I think in a couple of years, we're not yet there. Their decision to go in the direction of Europe was not so much geopolitical as it was a, a longing of the domestic societies to reform their countries, to have growth beyond the energy sector and to have a different model of governance of society that they think is more beneficial to more people within their countries. And they sort of, if you see how how Russia reacts to all protest movements and how Russia basically fights counter-revolutionary wars across its own periphery. They think this can, this choice, this societal political choice can only be made if you still have a freedom of choice between going towards the EU or associate with it or to sort of going to Moscow. And if you take away this choice, you would also predetermine their domestic politics and the people that can and will hold power in their countries, which again makes them enormously nervous. Now, said that again, the French have used the wrong vocabulary to frame their phrases and to frame the issue of insecurity and to frame the issue of, of lost diplomatic weight. Because the problem they might encounter from this development and the way they put the phrases up was that now many Eastern European countries will start to look into counterbalancing France through the EU uh, because they perceive rather the French idea as a threat to their own security than Russian-American power games or the predictability of Donald Trump. Uh, and that for the EU would be quite a tragic because it would make decisions in life very difficult for us. So, Katri, you're Estonian originally, and one of the interesting things about but one of the interesting things about my trip to Paris was they were all very, very proud that shortly after all of this started, there was a meeting of different ministers, and there was a very nice meeting with the Estonian defence minister and French counterpart. And one of the things which Estonia is doing is sending troops now to Mali and France is sending more troops to Estonia. And they were using this as a sort of example that actually, you know, this isn't the old fashioned French idea that we just have to be friends with Russia and an idea that countries like Estonia are not absolutely central to, to NATO and to the EU. But this is essentially about working out a relationship that works for all of us, all of these countries on the inside with Russia on the outside. How much is that seen in Estonia or is Estonia one of the countries that's nervous in the way that, um, that Gustav described? Well, I think Estonia is probably first and foremost puzzled 
because really, if you read that speech, it's often written with very broad brush. And the same theme about concentric circles, it's not elaborated at all. It's in one sentence, and he doesn't explain what he means by it. So I think they are puzzled and bewildered and waiting for follow-up. Now, it is true that there are links between France and Estonia, probably also France and other countries. But as Macron himself acknowledges, actually Germany has done a lot better work in investing in bilateral relationships in the EU. I think Germany is understandable to Estonia, whereas France, not necessarily. And that's another good thing about Macron's speech, that he has identified that weak point and seeks to address it. Because overall, I think it's a little bit premature to think about new world order, new European order, but that discussion nonetheless should be started. But to actually shape these things, I think you need two things. You need to have really proper, detailed, deep-going matter of the subject, be it Russia or any other geographical area your policy is focused on. And you, you need coalition building, patient discussions with your allies. And I think actually both of these things leave to be desired in that speech. I mean, the way he describes Russia at times are simply not correct. There was one sentence that suggested that pay attention to vitality of discussion in Russia. There is no vitality. I mean, the word of the day in Russia ever since the latest presidential election is tiredness. They get the atmosphere totally wrong. And that might be a minor detail, but it, it's a telling one. I think while initiative as such it should be welcomed. I think lots of work is still to be done. So one of the key places where this is going to be determined is going to be in Ukraine. That is a country which definitely has a lot of vitality at the moment. And in fact, a lot of French people said that the tactical reason for launching, if the strategic reason was about Trump and China, the tactical opening came with the election of Zelensky Lots of French people compare Zelensky with Emmanuel Macron. He's young, dynamic, creates a political party out of nothing, does things which seem politically impossible. But also he's made the idea of solving Ukraine's security situation one of the, the kind of centerpieces of his new government. So how does this play out in terms of, of Ukraine and what happens in Ukraine? Because France obviously is one of the, the core countries that's been managing the the Ukraine dossier along with the Germans as part of this Normandy format. What happens next? How is his speech seen in Ukraine? How does Ukraine fit into this new European security architecture? To be honest, it hasn't sort of the speech itself wasn't so widely discussed in Ukraine because there were other issues that overshadowed pretty much everything related with the American president. The coal scandal and, and all the revelations that followed. Just, I would be very cautious on how to interpret the, the progress that has been there in Ukraine. Uh, Zelensky promised during the election campaign that he will quickly end the conflict, which is popular because the people don't want to have a continuation of the war. I'd also be careful because Poroshenko actually promised exactly the same thing when he ran in 2014. 
Zelensky was quick to deliver on points that Poroshenko already promised he would implement. This is basically this disengagement plan in sort of on the very north of the front line. Stanitsa Luganska, he is also sort of not in a outrightly blocking position on many other issues that regard border crossings, cross border relations, demarcation, demining, troop sort of withdrawal from, from the demarcation line, that all fits into his pledge to ease the living conditions of the people affected by war. The problem is, on all the issues that relate to the Minsk implementation and the final conditions of the war, we still have very, very, very diverging positions between Russia and Ukraine. And yesterday, Lavrov came out with uh, the Russian preconditions for a final peace in Ukraine. And he basically uh, demanded surrender. So a federalization of Ukraine, a neutralization of Ukraine, it were not allowed to join the EU and not allowed to join NATO. Actually, very far-ranging demands, and the Ukrainians, neither Poroshenko nor Zelensky, ever gave any indication they would voluntarily sign up for this. On, on the details on the front line, yes, there is improvements, but on the strategic situation, we are pretty much where we were in 2014. And Katri, I want to go to the wider Moscow conversation quite shortly, but before we do that, specifically on the Ukraine front, can you maybe explain a bit more the difference between what the Russians mean when they say they want to solve Ukraine, <laughs> what Zelensky means, and also what Europeans mean in terms of the Minsk implementation. Russia wants to gain leverage over decision-making of Kiev for the years to come. Exactly, to keep Ukraine neutral, to make sure it doesn't join NATO. And there is a hope that special status that is promised to certain regions of Luhansk and Donetsk oblasts, or in other words, the separatist entities, that that could be a way of gaining such leverage. The talk in Moscow right now is that there could be some limited progress on the Minsk process. There has been some disengagement on the border, removal of some heavy weapons, all a lot more complicated than it sounds, multiple obstacles, but still there has been progress. So that could be something that could be achieved within this year. Some deconfliction, some removal of heavy weaponry, a bit more sustainable ceasefire. And that would, of course, already be good. I mean, ceasefire is definitely good. But as concerns special status and the political conditions, I didn't see anyone in Moscow who would have think that risk could happen. So what do they hope for? I mean, how did they see the, um, the Macron initiative? Well, to be honest, Moscow's view is a lot more bleak than in, in Europe. They are quite sceptical. They had long ago identified Macron as a politician who tries to compensate for domestic problems and weaknesses by launching bold but not so detailed international initiatives. And basically, they, they see that speech as, as one of those. I asked people and, you know, the replies I got were, well, there have been previous initiatives by Macron. What has happened to them? Uh, another person said that, yes, we would, of course, love to see your upcoming political actor decoupling from America, but that's, that's hardly in the cards. So basically, 
they are not investing in, in, in that, that sort of initiative. Even Putin himself? Well, I cannot tell. But I, I think, you know, of course they will see how they can use it. But I don't think that they are right now engaging with Macron as, as if he was speaking in the name of, of Europe. So what do you think the Russians want to see happen in terms of Europe's relationship with, with Russia? Because you've had various different phases. We talked about this often on the, on the podcast before. There was a kind of initial hope that when Trump was elected, that you could just forget about Europe and build a great relationship with Washington. And that was obviously scuppered. Then there was sort of hope that the Russians could work with anti-establishment leaders like Salvini in Italy and the the Austrian government and you know various other players. But that hasn't been as great from, from Moscow as they hoped. Some of these leaders are no longer in power anymore, but by and large, nobody's been that enthusiastic about lifting sanctions against Russia. So where have they got to now? Well, I think they are also in a sort of wait-and-see position. They are waiting to see how European-American relationship is, is playing up. You know, they permanently ask about European sovereignty and Russian criteria for sovereignty is, is, is high. And they, they don't see Europe living up to that. They, they wonder if Europe is, is still manipulated by the United States. I don't think they see particular hurry solving Ukraine. In a way, I think the initiative that Moscow launched two years ago by proposing peacekeepers in Donbass was probably more serious. Now, I'm not sure how far they are ready to go. I mean, certain way, yes, but afterwards you will have problems on both sides. And overall, I think Moscow is also confused. New European security order has been a permanent demand by Moscow. They don't like post-Cold War European order and they are ever more vocal. But now also they understand that the world is changing. You know, their focus for a long time has also been on the offences of 1990s, how, how Russia's view of the world order allegedly was not taken into account. My own view diverges. I think Russia articulated its vision completely differently at that time, and now they are preferring to forget about it. But anyway, you know, they are, they are blaming the West for what we did wrong, but now gradually they are starting to understand that putting the wrongs right would not be enough because the world is changing in the ways that are totally new and you need to go beyond what we what we had or what we could have had in the 1990s. I was I was part of I've been part of so many discussions about the future world order and and frankly none of them offers very much tangible. I think everyone understands that something new is needed but no one is is ready to really come forward with practical proposals. And that's why I say that this discussion is a little bit premature because we don't know what sort of world we are ordering. Everything is in, in such a flux that it is impossible to structure it. So Gustav, maybe we can end with this kind of question about the, the details and the structures. When I was in Paris, a lot of people said that Macron 
presented this new European architecture initiative like some sort of grand planner, like, you know, houseman in the way he rethought Paris. But then when after he presented it, his, le- his uh, leading ministers, the foreign minister Jean-Yves Le Drian and the defence minister Florence Barly, came at it from the other perspective. Rather than thinking about it as master planners from the top down, they suggested that we should start with the bottom up and build this order brick by brick. And they laid out five different areas where one could explore whether one could work with Russia in a different way. And they, you know, the areas are still quite broad, but they include questions like disarmament with the end of the INF Treaty, crisis management, looking obviously at Ukraine and other areas, questions to do with one which is about uh, common projects, which I think can include a lot of sort of counter-terrorism things and then working together in in, in different areas, we can put a link up to all of them on the on the website. But what do you think the the most promising areas are in terms of actually moving forward on the details? If one has more of a bottom up perspective, I think there are very few promising fields in the sense we understand promising, because the difference between us and and the Kremlin is that we Europeans, as we are a community of twenty seven states want to have everything casted into law and rules strictly defined because we have to govern this, whatever we do, amongst 27 member states. For the Kremlin, it's the power source of the one, and the one wants to preserve freedom of decision in as many fields as possible. Hence, you don't want to have fixed rules. You want to have certain arrangement that determine your status, but in situations you want to be flexible. And that's why basically all... All talks, whether they be economic, security, arms control, are enormously difficult with Russia. I still think that the most impact would be achieved in anything regarding the war in the Donbass. That is obviously the most difficult item of all of them. But it's also the most substantive item. If this item is not removed, all of of Eastern Europe or half of Europe, sort of the Rhine eastward, will not be comfortable in, in sitting down on anything else with Russia. And, and hence you need to try, although it's very difficult and very painful, and I think Moscow isn't yet in the mood to make concessions it, it needs to do to, to get this further. On all other issues, we might see one or the other short-term plug. One, for example, on INF, would be the revival of the old inspection regime as proposed by Moscow. I don't think that's a too bad idea. Still, even if you get that, probably the Americans and the Russians are equally uneasy about the Chinese potential at the same time and will rather watch Beijing than following each other. Said that, we still can try and even a short-term plug into a problem is better than a full-fledged leak. So you have to be pragmatic and rather think on the short term on on all of these issues. Okay, well, let's see how things uh, move on on the short term. I'm sure we'll come back and talk about it as it proceeds from here. But um, it's been great talking to the two of you so far and to think again about what a European security order might look like. We have one thing left to do. And I should say, uh, maybe as a bridge to our last thing, because we have to do one more thing on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Before we go into what's on Gustav and Kadri's bookshelves, 
I would recommend a fantastic explainer on the Macron Initiative on our website, which was written by both Gustav and Kadri, uh, along with some of our other colleagues at ECFR. So we'll put a link to that. What else should people read? What's on your bookshelf at the moment, Kadri? Lots of papers about world order, not least the Fresh Valdai Discussion Club analyzes that they prepare each autumn for the meeting in, in Sochi. But actually, what I would like to advertise, and I hope I haven't mentioned it here yet, is this book has been out since spring, that is Mark Kaleati's book, We Need to Talk About Putin. I think it's as timely as, as ever. I wish Macron read it as well. That would inform his outreach to Russia a great deal. Okay, what about you, Gustav? Well, to be brutally honest, I have two little kids. Um, the thinking about being able to read something for more than five minutes is something very luxurious. I think I will dream of for some time. No, I, I read some papers about now because we have workshops to prepare for energy dependency and how energy dependency between Russia and uh, Europe rather increase the potential for conflict, which is an interesting point of view. And otherwise, I'm into technicalities of arms control. But nothing very catchy at the moment. I'm very sorry. And I have a recommendation for hard-pressed parents who don't have very long to read because it's a tiny little book, more of an essay than a book, but is very thought-provoking. It's called Psychopolitics, Neoliberalism and New Technologies of Power by the Korean-German theorist Byung-Chul Han. Anyway, you can zoom through that in a few minutes and it will leave you thinking very big thoughts. So thank you very much to everyone who's been listening to us up to this point. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please let other people know about it on social media. Give us a good review on whatever platform you've used to listen to this on. And you can get links to all the things that we've mentioned on our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. But for now, from Gustav Gresser, Kadri Leek, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The research of our podcast is Jonathan Hagenbreich, and our editor is Marlena Riedel. Thank you very much. 